The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Like double dog dare you! Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, no f***ing you know? Wednesday edition of PFTPM. PFT Live still off until... July 20, it is the first day of July, and we are four weeks away from the scheduled launch of training camp. We'll talk about the various issues of the day that are relevant to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic and the National Football League. Before I get to that, it's important to note, two weeks from today is the deadline for signing franchise tag players to long-term contracts, and that's the deadline whether or not the player has signed his franchise tender. It's the deadline also for Kenyon Drake, the Cardinals running back, who was subject to the transition tag, and he has signed that tag. July 15, long-term deal has to be done by then. Otherwise, no new contract can be signed until after the end of the upcoming regular season, or more accurately, only a one-year deal can be signed. In theory, in theory, a player can get different terms than what the franchise tender would promise. For example, a commitment that perhaps next year the franchise tag would not be used. That's happened in the past. That could happen with one of the various players who have not yet signed their franchise tag, but may use the unsigned tag as leverage to get that term if there isn't a long-term deal by July 15. So two weeks from now, there will be news or not regarding the various players with the franchise tag. One of those players who is subject to the July 15 deadline for a long-term deal, Chiefs defensive lineman Chris Jones, said on social media on Tuesday, basically, if I don't get a long-term deal, I'm not signing the tender, and I'm going to sit out the season. I've spoken to Le'Veon Bell. Bell is the guy who sat out all the 2018 season. Now, there's a difference in sitting out all of the second season of the franchise tender versus the first season of the franchise tender. If Chris Jones sits out all of this season, he can still be tagged next year at a 20% increase over what the tag was this year. If you sit out all of the second year of the franchise tag, the following year, the only way to retain the player's rights via the franchise tag is to give him that quarterback offer. The five highest cap numbers in the league, the average of those cap numbers becomes the franchise tender for that third season, something that no one is ever going to do with a non-quarterback, most likely. There may be some exception at some point, some transcendent player who just gets a sack on every play or something along those lines. For the most part, though, teams aren't going to use the third franchise tender on anyone but a quarterback. And even on a quarterback, you're looking at a 44% bump over the second tag. So long story bearable. If you're going to sit out the full season, it's better to do it in the second year of the tag. Now, Chris Jones needs to remember a couple of things. First of all, There's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. One thing that is certain is that offer that has been put on the table and the promise of a 20% raise next year. Even if the salary cap goes down, 20% raise next year. The only way he doesn't get the 20% raise next year is if there's some sort of agreement between the league and the union where the union for all franchise tag players says, well, it won't be a 20% bump 
in 2021, it'll be 10% or 15% or 5% or something else. That's the only way that that goes away is if the fundamental rules of the franchise tag change. And I'm not suggesting they will. I'm just using that as an example of how it could happen. If there is some negotiation over the broader issues that are involved in this effort to try to figure out how to play during a pandemic. And if there is an agreement reached on how to deal with a reduced franchise tag or salary cap for next year, that's a possibility. Possibility, not a probability. Anyway, at a time when there is so much that is impossible to figure out, the smart move would be to go ahead and take that franchise tag, play it out this year, take the 20% raise next year. And then if you have to go year to year for two seasons after that second year, it's going to be very difficult for the Chiefs to use the franchise tag a third time. The most they would do is transition tag a third time, which would be a 20% raise over the second year franchise tag salary, which again would be a 20% bump over this year. The numbers go up very quickly. So I know Chris Jones wants that long-term deal. This isn't an ideal climate to get a long-term deal. And frankly, you know, you got to make your decisions in light of what the climate is. The climate suggests going year to year, go year to year. It's still damn good money at a time when many things are uncertain. Another player who wants to not sign his franchise tag, not sign a long-term deal, not play for the team that tagged him anymore, Yannick Ngakwe. There was a report earlier today he still wants to be traded. And look, I want to be respectful to my colleagues in the media who are reporting these things. And it's accurate. It's truthful. It's just, okay, why would circumstances have changed? He's always wanted to be traded. I don't think he was going to wake up on July 1, two weeks from the deadline for doing a long-term deal, saying, you know what, I don't want to be traded now. Now, that would be that would be news. That would be news. If a guy who's made it clear that he wants out all of a sudden decides he doesn't want out of Jackson behind Macy. Macy's barking. Somebody's here. Anyway, yes, Ngakwe still wants out. And no, the Jaguars have yet to show any inclination to trade him. And the problem is, with all the uncertainty that is affecting teams financially, the possibility of the cap going down in 2021, are you going to find a team that will give the Jaguars what they want for Yannick Ngakwe and in turn give Ngakwe what he wants by way of a long-term contract? I don't know that that happens. And I don't know that there's a team out there that would just trade for Ngakwe under the franchise tag and step into Jacksonville's shoes and be in a position where next year they would owe him a 20% raise over this year. So for some of the same reasons why it's going to be difficult for Jamal Adams to get a trade out of New York, franchise tag players this year, I think, are going to encounter difficulty in getting a trade done, especially as we inch toward this area of uncertainty regarding the virus. And it feels like every day the temperature is going up just a little bit on the uncertainty and on the possibility that the season will be adjusted, moved, curtailed, canceled. We don't know. We don't know. And I want to start right there. There's a disconnect between what the people at the upper reaches of the league think about the virus and what everyone else thinks, believes, suspects, whether it's players, coaches, fans, media, because the people at the top of the league who have a high degree of optimism that football is going to be played this year have not bothered to share with anyone else. And look, the fans in the media would love to know, but I'd like to think players and the coaches have an even greater reason to know whether or not this is going to work, how it's going to work, how it's going to look, how it's going to feel. Something I've been talking about for a while now with each passing day, you get closer and closer to training camp. Players need to know. Players need to know for a variety of reasons. They need to know what to expect. 
They need to know what kind of decisions they're going to make for themselves and their families. More on that coming up in a minute or two. But the bottom line is those folks who have that high degree of optimism at the top of the league, it'd be nice if they would share with someone specifics, details, reasons that would allow other people to come to the conclusion that, yes, football can happen in a pandemic, period. More evidence to suggest it's going to be difficult to pull off training camp and this season. Just a couple of days after Arizona went back into not a full shutdown, but a shutdown of bars, theaters, gyms, etc., for at least 30 days, California in 19 counties, putting the clamps back on a lot of these areas where people can gather in a confined space and the virus can spread. So what will Governor Gavin Newsom do next? I don't know. By the time we get to the end of July, will it even be possible or plausible to have training camps in California cities or Arizona or Florida? A lot can happen in four weeks. A lot has happened in the last four weeks. We were kind of getting to a point where around Memorial Day that we thought maybe these clouds are parting. Maybe we're through the worst of it. Maybe it really is going to subside until a second wave potentially would come in October, November, December. Never happened. First wave never ended. First wave is just finally hitting other states. Now, in California, they're getting a bit of a boomerang effect because they were part of that first crisis group back in March and April when it was Washington, California, and New York, and Connecticut. Connecticut's got it figured out. Connecticut went to very extreme measures as it relates to mask wearing. I saw something today that their hospitalizations are under 100 for the coronavirus right now, under 100. But some of these other states need to look at what the states are doing that got it figured out and start doing those things. This isn't difficult, folks. This isn't rocket science. There's evidence out there in some states as to how they went about beating back this crisis. Do what they did. Arizona, California, Florida, Texas. Hotbeds of the virus and hubs of professional and college football. Time for them to start doing what they did in Connecticut, what they did in New York to beat this thing back, or they're not going to beat it back. And as I said yesterday, even if you don't care about yourself, even if you don't care about your family members or your acquaintances to whom you could give the virus. If you care about football and you want to watch football, wear a mask, do what's expected, do what's required. And here's hoping that the government official out there in a given state who's responsible for making those decisions or collectively, the politicians generally warm up aggressively to the idea of mask wearing. We're starting to see it. It had been a red state, blue state thing for a while. More and more of the Republican politicians are telling people, wear a mask. There's one in particular who could go a long way towards sending that message. He hasn't and he won't. And even if he did at this point, I don't know how much of a difference it would make. An issue that I raised yesterday at ProFootballTalk.com, something that I've picked up recently, and something Peter King has been talking about for a while, the possibility of teams traveling on game days this year. There are teams that are thinking about it. There's at least one team that I know of that is planning to do it for the first game of the season. Packing up, getting on the plane, and flying the day of the game. Not spending the night, no hotel stay. You take your stuff from the plane to the stadium, the players and the coaches from the plane to the stadium, play the game, pack it all up, take it back to the plane, and get out of Dodge. Now, it's not unprecedented. 
Back in 2012, the Steelers did that when Hurricane Sandy had hit. Hotel rooms were being occupied by local residents. The Steelers didn't want to be a drain on the system, so they flew up and back the same day to play the Giants, and the Steelers actually won the game. So it, it's not a, a guaranteed loss. A lot of people immediately look at this from a gambling angle and say, oh, well, hey, the home team's going to win. Bet the home team. Bet the home team. Well, the line will reflect an actual or perceived bump for the home team if the road team flew in that day. And maybe what happens is the points that will go away for the home team by not having fans in the stands, maybe that gets restored by having an opponent who travels on game day. So, you know, the loose rule of thumb is playing at home is worth three points. You take away the fans, that goes down. You make the, not make the, but you factor in the road team traveling on game day and then maybe it goes back to where it was. Either way, it's being discussed. There were multiple players who reacted to our tweet of that headline in a negative way. Tyron Matthew said no. He's not interested in doing that. Hell no, he said. Eric Ebron of the Steelers said the whole team's going to end up on injured reserve. Other players with similar reactions. When we put that out there, that teams are indeed thinking about, talking about, considering the possibility of game day travel in 2020. And there are plenty of variables that could just screw things up. You get a weather issue, you don't get there on time. What happens? You get a, a maintenance issue with the plane. How many times have you sat on the tarmac waiting and waiting and waiting for the maintenance crew to show up and figure out whatever it is, reset a computer, remove a seat? I've seen it all in the past five years of flying back and forth to New York on weekends. And every once in a while, it's rare, but every once in a while, I would do the early morning flight from Pittsburgh to one of the New York airports on a Sunday with the goal of getting to the studio by noon and being there for the full day of games and then obviously be available for the 7 p.m. Eastern start of football night in America. And I'd be a nervous wreck until the plane landed. Nervous wreck because it doesn't take much to screw everything up. And the next thing you know, you're late or you're hustling to get there or you got a car that's coming to pick you up or you're looking for a train, whatever. You don't want to get in that spot. And that's why you don't travel the day of for something like that. Now, if there aren't fans at these games, okay, well, the game's supposed to start at one. I guess we'll start at four. Or maybe it becomes a night game. Now, it's not fair to the home team, but you want to get the game in. Maybe you have to move the game from a Sunday to a Monday. Again, not fair to the home team, but they're going to want to get the games in. Because ultimately, this entire approach is about getting into 256 regular season games and making the money. And I, I, don't, I don't fault them for that. I mean, it's, it's easy to, to say America needs these games. But if we're being candid, the NFL needs these games because the NFL needs and wants the money that comes from these games, especially when they're going to give up the billions, potentially, that would come from playing games without fans. And when it comes to playing games with fans, there was a report from Daniel Kaplan in The Athletic today that the NFL may use a waiver similar to what the president used in Tulsa a couple of weeks ago when he had that rally that, that included acknowledging the risk of catching the coronavirus. Now, look, I don't know that waiver is the right term because unless you're signing away your rights in a legal document, it's not a waiver per se. What it really is is an acknowledgement of the risk. Lest there be any confusion or doubt, 
And really, I don't even think you need it in this climate. Who's going to go to a game, get COVID-19, and then say, I got this game, I got this virus, I got this disease at a football game, and I had no idea that could happen, right? Everybody knows the risk at this point. Now, the, the real potential liability comes from what steps, if any, will be taken to try to minimize the spread? Will there be a mandate that everyone must wear masks? Will you be ejected from the venue if you don't have a mask on? Will there be six feet of separation among the seats? How far does the NFL go that way? Or do they just say, this is what we're doing. Mask wearing isn't mandatory. Seating is going to be as it always is. You assume all risks. If you and we encourage you, if you have any doubt whatsoever, don't buy the ticket and don't come to the game, period. So look again, waiver is a little bit misleading because I think that implies that someone is actually signing their name to a document that waives legal rights. This isn't about waiving legal rights so much as it's about defeating those legal rights by making it 100% clear that everybody knows what they're getting into. And again, who on the face of earth right now, who in this country right now, would be able to say they don't know about the risk of getting the coronavirus and developing COVID-19 by going to something like a sporting event or any other large gathering. Speaking of legalities, I saw recently that baseball is not going to disclose when players are on the COVID-19 list, this separate list they've created for parking players who otherwise would be on the roster while they go through the process of having the virus leave their system. They're not going to announce who's on it. People are just going to have to figure it out. Hey, where's Jim? Jim's not here. He must be on the COVID-19 list. There's no other explanation. He's not on the DL. He's not deciding to launch his own mini strike. He's not here. There's no other explanation for why he's not here. So I must be on the COVID-19 list. It's kind of ridiculous. Again, people treat this disease like it's, it's got a stigma. It doesn't have a stigma. Why do we think it has a stigma? The only thing that has a stigma is if you did something stupid to get it, like go to a bar without a mask on, engage in behavior you shouldn't be engaging in. That's the stigma. You were dumb. It's avoidable, and you didn't avoid it. But the idea that they're not going to tell people who has it, you're just going to have to figure it out. Oh, he's not here tonight. See, I think that gets into the whole integrity of the game from the standpoint of gambling perspective. You're not going to find out ahead of time. Think about that. And football can't do that. Well, I, I mean, what, what are you going to do? You have an injury report before every game. Questionable, doubtful, out. Questionable, knee, doubtful, ankle, out, hip, whatever. The, the one guy who doesn't have a designation you don't have a designation. Oh, that's the COVID guy. It's stupid. It's just stupid. It's impractical. And maybe Major League Baseball just agreed to it because they said, who, well, who cares? I mean, people are going to figure it out. But the problem is when guys show up for that first game or don't show up for that first game that they're on the COVID-19 list, if you got people who have wagered hard-earned money on the outcome of that game and they thought so-and-so was going to be there, now all of a sudden he's not, you just like to think that there will be some advance notice that the player won't be there. And regardless of whether or not they disclose the reason. I think it's incumbent on baseball and also football and any other sport in this current climate of, of a proliferated legalization of gambling that somebody will 
make it clear that the player isn't going to be there, even if they don't say why he's not going to be there. But I just don't like that because it treats this disease like it's some sort of a secret. It's not a secret. And given the fact that it is something that can spread, I think the more we know about who has it, the, the, the greater awareness people have about who to interact with, who to go around. It's just a, a situation where more knowledge is better than less knowledge. It's not like we're going to run into some baseball star somewhere and say, oh, I'm staying away from you. You're on the COVID-19 list. I just think the idea and the attitude that it should be treated with secrecy is unfortunate because it can trickle down. And other people can say, well, yeah, I'm not telling anybody when I have it either. If baseball's not telling anybody who has it, why should I tell anybody if I have it? I'm not telling anybody. I'm not sharing this information. And then the whole system potentially breaks down. All right, one last topic for today. The concept of opting out. And this is part of what the NFL and the NFL Players Association inevitably is currently discussing. And they need to get it worked out sooner rather than later. On Thursday, players are going to be talking about these issues at some point, a deal needs to be done between the league and the union, or you can't have training camp. And maybe in this deadline-driven sport, they take it right up to July 28th before they have an agreement. But one facet of this agreement must be that players retain the right to tap out if they decide they don't feel safe in any environment. Their locker room, practice, field, game, whatever the case may be. Now, I think the NFL will probably push for a speak now or forever hold your peace approach where before the start of training camp, you have to say you're in or you're out. I haven't heard that, but it wouldn't surprise me if the league doesn't push for that. That seems to be an obvious position the NFL would want. We want to know at the outset who's in, who's out. I don't think that's good enough because for the players who are showing up on July 28th, they don't know what to expect. They don't know what it's going to look like. They don't know how it's going to feel. Do you really want a guy who is on the team, in the locker room, on the field, who develops a, a realistic fear, a realistic distress and concern over the way things are being handled? If he doesn't feel safe in that environment, why are you requiring him to stay in that environment? So I think that players need to have the power at any time this season whenever they see fit to say, I'm out. And then I think they need to have a period of time after that where they can say, I'm back in. I don't think it should be a revolving door where you can say, I'm out on October 10. I'm back in on October 17. I'm out again on October 31. I'll let you know if I'm coming back before Thanksgiving. There needs to be a procedure that's fair and maybe you only get one leave and return. And then if you leave the second time, you can't come back. These are all things that need to be hammered out. And it's unavoidable. And let's be realistic. I don't want to be cynical here. I want to be realistic based upon what I've learned over the past 20 years of covering the sport. I feel like some players may be tempted to use the opportunity to opt out as a way to maybe get a better contract for reasons unrelated to the coronavirus. Now, let me say this. There could be a player who says, you know what? I feel like I'm underpaid. I'm going to threaten to not play this year 
even though I have a contract and I can't hold out because I'd be fined $50,000 a day and I'd have other penalties if I hold out. I, I give up my salary. I tap out. I, I don't play because of the coronavirus. And if they want me to play, well, they, they better they better you know give me what I want financially. And then I will not exercise my right to tap out. But there will be some players who look at this as a financial proposition. How much is enough to get you to assume that risk? See, there's been talk about the players possibly taking less this year, give backs under the salaries that are paid out to the players. That bubbled up a few weeks ago via NFL media. I think it was kind of a trial balloon that was being floated to see how the fans would react, see how the union would react. Look, if I'm a player and I'm fully cognizant of the risks that I already am assuming in a normal year and now in 2020, I'm going to have this additional stress, this additional burden, this additional risk that I'm going to be made ill, that I'm going to expose my family members to illness and potentially to death, depending upon their risk factors. I'm tempted to say you should pay me more to do this. You should eat into your profit margin to do this because you, owner of the team, will not be taking these same risks. You, owner of the team, will at all times be protected by whatever device you have created to seclude yourself from everyone else. Just staying home, being in a box that is fully and completely ventilated with no one else in there on game day. I don't know how many owners will even go to the stadium on game day. The bottom line is the risks are fundamentally different. And so if you do create a system that allows players to opt out, the reality is you introduce a new factor for negotiation to get players to not opt out. And you've got two categories. The player who legitimately looks at this and says, for $1.5 million this year, it's not worth it. If you want to make it more worth it, I'll consider it. But all things considered here, with all the factors balancing, given what you're paying me, I'd rather not play. Oh, you're paying me more? Then what I'm due to make, well, now it's starting to balance out. And then at some point, you tip the scale in the direction of the guy saying, I'll do it. That's, that's, that's reality. And the other reality is there will be guys who aren't worried about the virus at all, but see it as an opportunity with the consultation of their agents, who I guarantee you will be thinking through these issues. And will give us every reason to be as cynical as we can be about this. There will be agents who tell a guy, hey, look, I know you don't care about the virus, but maybe you should. Well, what do you mean? I don't care about it. I'm not worried about it. I'm healthy. I'm young. We're living with me who are at risk. Maybe you should. Maybe you want to think this through a little bit more there before you make a final decision. Maybe, maybe there's a way that we can play this to get you a better contract, to get you an extension, to get you whatever. Look at Chris Jones, right? Chris Jones can say, I'm not comfortable playing this year under the franchise tag, given the risks of playing. I'm a big guy. I don't know what his BMI is, but anybody with a BMI of over 30 is in a position where there's a heightened risk. And if you've ever seen one of those BMI charts, I, there's a lot of people who are in the upper 20s and 30s who you wouldn't think are that high on the, on the overall scale. But it... it that to me is a very real factor 
in these negotiations. And that's what takes it from the negotiations between the players and the league collectively and makes it an individualized thing that can just go off the rails. You could have a rash of players. You could have a stampede of players who are saying, I'm not playing this year unless you give me more, whether it's because they want more to offset the risk of playing in a pandemic or they just want more because they want more anyway and they could care less about the risk. They just see this as an opportunity to get more. It's a fascinating dynamic. And it's another reason why no matter how hard I try to make myself optimistic about this, I look at these issues. I look at this circumstance. I pay close attention to the news. And I, like Roddy Harrison on yesterday's PFTPM, like Bill Cower in comments he made to Ed Bouchette of The Athletic, I just don't know how they're going to pull this off. And I feel like the attitude and the approach is, let's just see how it goes. And I feel like that attitude, that strategy is not a winning strategy. Not that there's a better one, but the NFL had the benefit of a significant head start here. And I don't know that the NFL has made full use of its head start. And I'm not surprised. We say it all the time. The NFL is not proactive. The NFL is reactive. And I think we're going to see a lot of reacting in July and August. And the problem is when it's time to react, when it's time to pivot to plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E, plan F. Part of what we're going to hear is, well, that plan would have worked if that would have been plan A. And because we didn't plan for that from March and just assumed plan A would work, plan B, plan C, plan D, plan whatever isn't going to be feasible, isn't going to be practical. And the primary example there is the bubble concept. There's no way in hell they're going to throw a bubble together on the fly. So could we see the same thing we've seen from other sports? Maybe it does get postponed. Maybe we do have a late February Super Bowl. Maybe we have a March, April, or May Super Bowl, and then when in the hell do you start the next season? A lot of questions, a lot of issues, a lot of basis for realistic concern, and not a lot of information allowing anyone who pays attention to the sport on a regular basis to come to the conclusion that they have a plan that will work. Again, this does not come from the perspective of someone who is rooting against football. I am very much rooting for football to happen, but I'm also very realistic. And I'm concerned that the NFL has not been as prudent, as careful, and as proactive as it needs to be to come up with a plan that will work, to anticipate every hurdle. J.C. Treader, the union president, said recently what I've been saying for weeks, Every time there's a question that's answered, three more questions come up. He said three. I've said five. Let's split the difference and call it four. Either way, this snowball grows and grows and grows, and it quickly could be an avalanche. And it makes me wonder, how could this have been avoided with better planning, with better foresight, and with a greater appreciation of the challenge the NFL is facing? And should we be surprised? If the most popular sport in America ends up behaving just like the American government has behaved the past four months, I guess we shouldn't be. I guess that's all we can expect from the best that we have to offer in this country is no planning, is no creative thought, no foresight, no proactivity. And in the end, it may be no football. 
That's it for today's PFTPM. We'll be back tomorrow with all the latest news and insights and analysis. Until then, check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com. Have a great day. Stay safe and wear a mask. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.